All right, well, we're going to do uh, tonight, and then we're going to do one more class next Wednesday. Um, I know it's the 3rd, and next day will be 4th of July, so we may have a small crowd, but I'll be here if you're wanting to be here, and we'll finish up. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to teach this class. Um, before I get started, I just want to ask, um, is there anything about the class that you'd like to discuss before I jump into what we have for tonight? Questions, something that's not clear to you? Okay. Do what? Help my unbelief. There you go. Well, the class, it's been a, a long process for me, and I think I told you when I first became a Christian, this idea was instilled in me by our own uh, James Burton Kaufman. In all of his commentaries, he pointed this out. And so I've, I've been researching it for a long time. But, I mean, he's right. The, the, the original language is very, very clear what it's saying. And then when it was tra translated, the first language that the New Testament was translated into is Latin. And the Latin is very, very clear. It's, it's unambiguous. Um, and then it, when it came into English, it was very, very clear. And so the first time it appeared in English was the year 1703. Up until then, there was really no question about it. Um, but it really is, is a paradigm shift because there was such an upheaval um, with, with the Protestant Reformation. And that's been my argument from the beginning. You know, we, we go back to the New Testament and we look at the writings of the New Testament and clearly baptism plays a significant role in uh, the conversion process. In fact, there's only one note in the entire book of Acts of anyone coming to Christ where Luke does not record the fact that they got baptized. And it's, a, it's in chapter 17, and it's very passing. You know, Paul went into Athens, he preached, and he had all that turmoil. And then almost as he's concluding that narrative, he says, oh yeah, and Dionysus and some other people became believers. And he doesn't mention that they were baptized. But that's the only time. Every other person who comes to Christ. And we saw this, that this was really the culmination of a process. They, they heard the proclamation on the day of Pentecost. Um, they were convicted of their sin. They confessed that there was something wrong, that they believed this new version of what had happened. Um, and they wanted to know what to do. And Peter, uh, Luke has Peter recording, you know, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And we trace that out for about 400 years, there's pretty standard um, teaching throughout the New Testament church after the New Testament's closed, um, that, that that's the understanding. And then something happens about the year, uh, well, it begins about the year 250, but by the year uh, 400, and certainly by the year 425, when Augustine uh, articulates his doctrine of original sin, you have two things coming into play. Number one is the practice of infant baptism. 
which was happening about the year 250 sporadically, and then it became more and more and more and more common. So by the time Augustine is writing his doctrine of original sin, he uses the, the practice of infant baptism as justification for his doctrine of original sin. And that surprises a lot of people because they think that the two uh, are reversed, thinking that infant baptism came into being because of the doctrine of original sin. But that's not true. It, it, historically, it happened the other way around. But these two things work together to really uh, tweak the idea of Christian baptism. Um, first of all, with this practice, what happened was baptism, as we look at it, was really the culmination of a process. It was hearing and understanding a message that was being proclaimed, um, and then it was uh, not only hearing it and understanding it, but getting it on an intellectual level that it, it had implications for your life. I mean, if Jesus of Nazareth was not just some Roman criminal, you know, punished for his crimes, he was the perfect sinless son of God offered by God as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That means your sins and my sins. Well, now it becomes a message that I have to respond to. And so it takes some intellectual uh, capacity. I, I don't deny that it can happen in a fairly young child, but I certainly don't think an infant is capable of hearing and understanding and making confession um, of personal sin, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, of repenting, um, repenting, hearing, believing. Um, yeah, I got, I'll, I'll put faith down here. So it's a whole process that happens. And then baptism is sort of the culmination of that. But what happened when you get this practice of infant baptism, none of this matters. It's all gone. So now all we have to do is we have the, the, the magic water, if you will, and we, we bring the infant into contact with the magic water, and poof, it's done its, it's, done its thing. Ex opere apurato. In, in that theology, uh, how vital is the function of the confirmation? It's essential. Yeah, if you so, get into so, it... And, so that's where the faith and the repentance and confession are worked into that. Yes, thank you, Gary, for clarifying that. Yeah, the way the catechism reads is the infant is baptized and the faith is the faith of the community, the church, and the faith in particular of the parents and the godparent at the infant's baptism. And then the infant has to grow up and confirm that when the, when the child reaches the age of accountability. Without the confirmation, the baptism meant nothing. And that's the official catechism of the, of the Catholic Church. So thank you for clarifying that. Okay, and then, you know, you, you take the, the doctrine of original sin and you, you bring that into play, and then the teaching became all baptism does 
is remove the taint of original sin. Uh, it, it, I think, if I understand correctly, it removed past sins, although there's not a lot of talk of this. Why? Well, because everybody who was being baptized was an infant. And so this really isn't an issue. There are no past sins. And then it turned the sinner toward God. So that, by the, by the year 425, um, that is all Christian baptism does. And that's pretty much this, the teaching all the way up until this day. So the question became, well, okay, this baby's going to grow up. He confirms his faith. She confirms his faith, becomes a good Catholic, but it's going to continue to sin because of concupiscence, original sin, the, the sin nature. How do you deal with that? And then we, get, we got into all the, you know, the penance, the works that had to be performed, and, and all of that. Well, that, for about a thousand years, turned into a real mess, didn't it? We saw that in our class. By the time you get to the Middle Ages, you've got a, a church that's off the rails. I mean, it is so corrupt. And now, and we did a whole chapter, a whole class on indulgences, which is basically, you know, your, your acts of penance that you have to do to remove those sins that you've committed after baptism, well, I'll tell you what, you know, do this, 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 and this, or I got this basilica in Rome that I'm trying to build, and if you'll give me a hundred bucks toward it, I'll wipe out your, and I'll sell you an indulgence. And it just became a, a farce, really. And so about 1517, a young monk uh, teaching at the University of Wittenberg, Wittenberg, uh, he'd had enough. You know, the, the century before, uh, Tyndale had had enough. He was starting to make noise. He was translating the New Testament. He was reading it. Wycliffe before him, he was beginning. People were beginning to, to become aware of what the Bible said. I mean, remember up until this point, nobody knew what the Bible said. Gutenberg invented his printing press. And so men were beginning to, to write not so much the Bible at first. Of course, the, the first thing he printed was a Bible, but it, the Bible in, it, in its entirety was not readily available. But what was available was little tracts. And they would pass these things out. And they'd say, here's what Paul says in Romans. And they're saying, wow, I never knew that that's what Paul said. And here's what the church is doing. And so suddenly there was a, a, a firestorm waiting for a place to break out, right? And it did. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door. And it, I mean, he had no intention uh, what he wanted to do was sit down and have a civil discussion about this. And it didn't turn out that way, did it? He was excommunicated and he started the Protestant Reformation. But my point is, it really, we, we, have, we have this trajectory. And, and, and that's, it's just the way things are. Thoughts move in trajectories. And they tend to stay in uniform, straight lines. And so we had this trajectory up till about 425, and then it got altered, and then it got altered again 
by Martin Luther and the reformers. And what did they say? They said, you know, here this trajectory is how, when and how does God remove sin from human beings? He does it by, to simplify, oversimplify probably, by works of righteousness. And Martin Luther and gang said, no, he does it by faith alone. In Christ alone, and so on and so forth. Well, Luther, see if you, so you've got hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. So here was the trajectory. That's all you had to do. Luther comes back and says, no, this is the most important one. And the logical conclusion is, you know, if you, if you emphasize this one, these disappear. What happens if you emphasize this one? These disappear, right? And that's what happened, in my judgment. So we've got a trajectory that is, is going on right up until today that says when... When does God remove the sin of a sinner? And how does God remove the sin of a sinner? And the answer to both under the, the modern evangelical position is when the sinner develops faith in Christ. And how is that sin removed? By the sinner's faith in Christ. And that is the that is the paradigm that we're we're discussing, and you and I come along as as people in the American Restoration movement, and we're trying to say, you know, something's not right here, um, because James says you're not saved by faith alone, and everybody in the New Testament was baptized and repented and confessed and did some other things. So how do we have this conversation without talking past each other? And that's been going on for several hundred years, right? We're trying to have this conversation. So that's what my book is all about, is to try to give us a paradigm that we can use to kind of structure our, our understanding and then a vocabulary so that we can enter into this conversation and not speak past each other. Because, as we saw last time, what's happening in the evangelical world, to me, is very encouraging. For example, um, and I think we saw this quote last time at the end of our class. Paul's intention in introducing baptism in Romans 6 is not to emphasize how we were buried with Christ, but to demonstrate that we were buried with Christ. And he cites Douglas Moo. This is Frank Matera, who's a Baptist. He teaches in a Baptist theological seminary. The emphasis is not on baptism as the means of God's activity, although this is not excluded, but on the occasion of his work. To separate baptism from other dimensions of the conversion experience is mistaken. For Paul, baptism, faith, reception of the Spirit, repentance, and confession of Christ are one complex 
of events that all occur at conversion. Well, what's he saying? He's saying what we've been saying for 200 years. But what they're saying is that the baptism into Christ took place at the time of your faith. <laughs> I don't think Matera is saying that. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, I've read his commentary pretty carefully. Okay, well, I'm just saying look, that... Look at this one. This is uh, Dettering. In his theology of Christian baptism, the Apostle Paul is not merely suggesting that there is only an analogy between the experience of one who is baptized and the redemptive work of our Lord. Instead, he indicates that through baptism, one actually shares in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. When Christ died, the baptized believer died with him. When That's Christ it. was buried, That's the point right there, the baptized the baptized believer died with him. In other words, that happened. At, cro at the cross. You see, what, what I'm saying is that the belief is that that's when it took place. And when, when you put your faith in Christ, you, at that moment... But Dietering is not saying that. He's saying it happens at baptism. When Christ was... When the baptized believer was raised with him, when Christ was raised, the baptized believer was raised. He's saying, and, and again, this is his, com his commentary, something actually happens at Christian baptism is what he's saying. I believe that, but that's not what that's saying. That's okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I just, I'm not trying to be... I think one of the things that um, through the years, I see that what we think a lot of times is you have to have the correct interpretation of baptism for it to take. And I think one of the things that we can walk in grace is there's a lot of people that may not understand it correctly but I didn't so but you're still trying to do I was baptized three times right and do we have to have a perfect do, no, is the same way we don't have to have a perfect faith to become baptized nor do we have to have a perfect understanding thank you of the processes and everything for it to be applicable so what if what if it was you thought it was before but it was during right does that mean it still isn't there and i don't think so i think you're you're trying to do the right thing and god honors the heart correct carl back to uh i haven't been able to be in your class enough but if it's the faith of jesus his death he did for us what we do and it's our opportunity to be a part of that right and so Right, which I think is what is being said here. We're, we are buried into his death. That's what Dieterine is saying at baptism. At least that's how I understand the article. That's why I brought the quote. So when I was growing up and they said, well, baptism was to wash away your sins, but then we're singing the song, what can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Correct. So the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. Correct. Not just being dipped into the water. Right. Right, and yeah, and baptism is where you come in contact with the blood of Christ because you're buried into his death. Bob? What about um, those denominations who say you're being baptized into the church, into their belief, into... So does that negate the, the baptism that the believer had? I don't know what it does. I just know that that's a common way around this. You're saved by your faith, and then baptism is your declaration that you want to be recognized as a member of the church, where like we saw last week, the two happen at the same time. 
when you're baptized into Christ, God adds you to the church. The two happen at the same time. Baptism? Do what? Is that considered a work? It is by some, absolutely. So what I'm trying to say with this book is there is a very healthy conversation going on. There's a lot of people doing a lot of writing. There's a lot of people rethinking. There's an entire group of uh, Baptist uh, seminary teachers in Britain, and they've written an entire series of books about we need to rethink our position on baptism. And I believe Dieterine is one of them. And they're being accused of being sacramentalists, water regenerationists. And one of the, one of the chapters, and I think I mentioned this a couple of classes ago, it was actually written, uh, the, the, our belief uh, compared to uh, Alexander Campbell. And the guy says, it turns out we, we believe a lot like Alexander taught, Alexander Campbell taught. Um, but here's the thing, and, and I need to be real careful with the next few slides because I want to express myself, but I, I don't want to be overly um, accusatory. But if, if you look back at our history in Churches of Christ, we have not always expressed ourselves very well. We, we have a certain trajectory in our own fellowship that began, uh, and again, we, we were started on a trajectory that led us um, to have certain things that we emphasize. And when we get into these conversations, we're not understood very well, okay? So, for example, all right, again, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw it out there. You do a Google search. Church of Christ and God's plan of salvation. Those two were those two phrases. And here's what you get. Here's a typical web page. It's 1735 word explanation of God's plan of salvation. Okay? And I read it, went through it, put it into word and did a word count. 1,680 of those words are about what human beings do. That's 97% of the explanation of God's plan of salvation is focused on the human response. So how does that come across? 3% of that explanation of God's plan of salvation talks about what God did to save sinful human beings. So it's just something to think about, right? It's pretty telling. Yeah, and I'm trying not to be, I mean, I'm not being ugly. I'm just, we were placed on a trajectory in our fellowship and it led us to emphasize certain things. And what I'm trying to do is to get us to back up and take a look at that and see if those are the right things that we should be emphasizing. So, you know, my goal in my preaching and teaching is always to instill confidence in people that I preach to and that I teach. And so this is a book that was given to me as I was searching. And this is what I was told. You're, right, you're put into a right relationship with God when you find the right church. And the preaching was a lot, you know, uh, there's a lot of people out there who believe they're right, but they're not. 
And there were sermons about why they weren't right. And I'm, yeah, and I'm asking us, you know, here's, here's a critique of the Church of Christ. The doctrine taught within Churches of Christ is that the role of Christ was merely for the purpose of displaying to sinful man how to save himself. And here's the little booklet that I was given. How this is God's plan of salvation. Now, where does that talk about God? That does a lot of talking about what I got to do, but it doesn't do a lot of talking about what God has done to save me. And so when we try to enter into this conversation, we're not, we're not communicating in a way that people are understanding what we're saying. We're saying things that put them off um, because we sound a lot like the things that they're, they're objecting to, that they're protesting. So our preaching, our teaching, our emphasis must re remain on the good news of Jesus Christ. He saves us. He does the work. If you're going to talk about God's plan of salvation, then please talk about God's plan of salvation. What does the death, burial, and resurrection mean? What does it do for me, for the world? That's all I'm saying. God gets all the verbs is what I'm saying, which is what I've been saying all quarter, right? God has done it all. Now, here's how I present it. And I learned this uh, at that school I went to right out of, uh, right out of high school. And it's kind of a joke. Um, these, these are new images that I, I got a guy at Lubbock Christian to do. He's a graphic artist. He just graduated. I've been using these for 40 years. We used them in Mexico. Well, it turns out now that there's some discussion that these things have been copyrighted. <laughs> and so I said, well, I don't buy anybody's copyrights. So I just I sent them to a kid at... Love a Christian, and he came up with some new images, so I can't get in trouble. But, but here, in my mind, this is how God makes us righteous. I mean, this is the core of the story. Christ coming, Christ dying, Christ taking upon Himself the sins of the world, and Him being buried... And Peter says his body could not be held by Hades. Why? Because he was sinless. Physical death is a consequence of human sin. If Jesus had no sin, then his body could not be held by death. And it was, it was a, pro a prophecy, a psalm, that God had said that. I will not allow your body to see decay. I will not leave you in Hades. And so on the third day he was raised... And, and that's the message that's been entrusted to the, to the church. And so, as N.T. Wright says, the faithfulness of Jesus is thus the means whereby the righteousness of God is revealed. How does God make one righteous? It's, it's not by my faith. How could it be? It's not by my works. How could it be? It's by Christ. How do I get there? Right there. What is baptism? It's what Dieterine is saying. 
we need to rethink this. I die with Christ when I'm baptized. I come into contact with what Christ did when I'm immersed. And it followed, it's followed by my development of faith and my repentance and my confession. It's all part of a process. But when, when I'm put under the water, and this is a passive act. So Diane, I mean, this is, you know, this is what they're saying. Oh, baptism is a work. Well, how is baptism a work and developing faith is not a work? It doesn't make sense to me. No. Paul says in Colossians 2 that it's God's work. And so is baptism. Yeah, that's what he says in Colossians. Okay, okay. That it is a circumcision not made with physical hands, but spiritual circumcision, having faith in the operation of God. Thank He's you. discussing baptism. Thank you. And so this is the conversation I think, I, I think we will be heard. We are not saying that you know, we can save ourselves by doing certain things. That's not what we're saying. The emphasis is on what God has accomplished in Christ. The question is, where? And Paul's answer is, in Christ. How do I get into Christ? This is how you get into Christ. Carl? The sinner's prayer of what is normally used uh, is something you do. I accept, I accept Jesus giving you know, what all, all that commitment. Uh, this is just a picture there. I can't do anything. I'm just going to let Jesus take care of me. I, my baptism is uh, I am not, I'm dead, and I'm going to let him save me. It's not an act. Now, the people will say, well, sinner's prayer is saying, the sinner's prayer is something you do. Sure. Have enough faith. So, uh, None of us, either one, are saying that it isn't, it isn't all, it isn't Jesus, but I think that this picture is a more beautiful picture that we're, we passively receive. Passively receive God's free gift. Jeff? Is there any occurrence in the Bible where somebody baptized themselves? No. Then I guess that's the answer. Yeah. It can't be a word. Or you can baptize yourself. Something that's done to you. Exactly. And something that is done to you in this realm, and it's something that's done to you on the spiritual realm. But even if someone did read the Bible and decide that they need to be baptized and there's no one to baptize them, and they went in and did it, it's still a work of Jesus. I would, I would agree with you. I think what I'm the difference is what I'm trying to give the church a, a paradigm and a terminology that we can join in this conversation that's really going on on a on a large scale level. So let's watch. Um, oh, let me show you this. Okay, so baptism experience and new a new birth, pun intended. Steve's not here tonight. Uh, many scholars are arguing for a new view of baptism. Foreign missionaries are much closer to New Testament. We found a whole a whole pocket of missionaries in Cuernavaca, Mexico. That I mean, I called my elders and I said, "You wouldn't believe this." I went to their Bible study for three weeks in a row, and they're they're teaching baptism for the remission of sins. What do I do? And he said, "Welcome in, welcome as as brothers, right?" <laughs> yeah, but they don't have the name Church of Christ on their building. Iglesia de Cristo. They said, "So what?" <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, foreign missionaries, you know, they get out of the, the mainstream and the ties of the headquarters back home, and they begin teaching. It's like in, in Mexico, you're either a Christian or you're Catholic. Católico o Cristiano. And, and if you're Cristiano, you know, you're teaching the New Testament. And their, their Bible, their New Testament is, is quite a bit more literal than our English. Okay, an opportunity exists to find... Okay, so here's Witness Lee. Uh, he was a church planner in China. What is baptism? T baptism is not merely a ceremony for joining the church. Thus, to be baptized is to be immersed into Christ. In baptism, we are baptized into Christ. It is neither an outward form nor an outward ritual. So, I mean, he's teaching something happens at one's baptism. It is the moment of conversion. That's what he teaches. Um, another guy, they changed their names, by the way. Witness Knee, Watchman Knee, hammered out while serving as an independent church planner. He was originally connected with the Plymouth Brethren. They excommunicated him because of his teaching, not only on baptism, but other things. And here's what he says. He who believes in the baptized shall be saved. I suppose Protestants are a little afraid of this verse. They, they don't read it. And when they do read it, they change it to who believes in is saved shall be baptized. And he goes into great length to say, well, that's the same thing we're saying, right? So anyway, let's watch this. You ever seen this? I mean, let me, this one I got to fast forward. Let's hear it. want to be filled with the Spirit living for you. And I hope that's you today. And if not, I hope you prayed that prayer that we just sang, Lord, Spirit of God, you know, just, just fan into flame this passion for your name. Consume me, change me, stir it up in my heart, this passion for your name and not for all this sin. The last time I spoke, and I spoke on the Holy Spirit, and it's been so good. I've had so many positive responses about this series on the Holy Spirit. But the last time I spoke, I got a lot of confusion coming back. A lot of people were confused after my last message over one issue. When I preached on Acts 2, 38, uh, where the passage says, Repent and be baptized, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've had all sorts of emails and phone calls and letters asking, okay, well, it sounded like you were saying I have to repent and then be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. And then other people were asking, well, can I be a Christian without being baptized? Others were saying, can I be a Christian without repenting? Can I be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? And when does the Holy Spirit actually come in? If I just repent and do I get the Holy Spirit right then without being baptized? And all these questions came in and I, I want to answer them all with a question back at you. Why do you ask? Because they didn't ask. They, they asked one question. When they heard the message, when they heard the gospel message, when they heard that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he paid the penalty for their sins, he heard that he was buried and he rose from the grave, they asked a different question. They asked, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Peter's response was, we need to repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? 
They didn't ask any questions after that. What they did was they repented, got baptized, and were filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, it's a crazy response, isn't it? They just did it. But we would rather ask a bunch of questions, and we would rather philosophize and speculate, and go, well, yeah, but technically, can't you really, I mean, did they really have to get baptized? I mean, I mean, and when, when did the Holy Spirit come in? Was it when they got under the water? Or was that when he came in, or when they come out? Or was he already in them, or did it take the Holy Spirit to get them to repent anyways in the first place? Or what if they were on their way down and they trip? You know, what, what, if, what about this? What about that? You guys, they just did it. I don't understand the questions. I don't understand where the questions are coming from. Because my seven-year-old, my seven-year-old was in service and she understood. My seven-year-old was in service that Saturday night, comes home crying and says, Dad, I want to be baptized. I want the Holy Spirit in me. I want to follow Jesus. And uh, I go, great, baby. That's great. So you know what you need to do? Come back tomorrow morning and get baptized. And so she did, and she's up here crying and, and asking Jesus, you know, asking for the Holy Spirit to come into her life to help her live the way she was. My seven-year-old got it. She didn't come home and say, well, okay, Dad, explain this to me. It's crazy, but she just obeyed. It was like those believers back then that didn't sit around as a bunch of theological scholars. They just heard, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Great, let's do it. They didn't care when the Spirit came in and what second, what moment, what came first. They just did it. And what's crazy to me is that we have gotten so off track in America, and the way we talk about the Bible, that nowadays people say you can be a Christian without repenting, being baptized, or having the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many gospel presentations do you hear where people say, well, just walk down an aisle, pray a prayer, receive Jesus? Okay, where do you see that in the Bible, though? I mean, I did it. I did it as a kid because that's what I was told. I was in the system and I felt just absolutely fine with it until I started reading the scriptures. And it never sat well with me. Where does it talk about this prayer for receiving? I see repentance. I see baptism. I see the Holy Spirit. But, but what, where, where, where are we getting this? Okay, so um, as I say, there... There's a lot of this type of talk going on. And it's coming out in books, it's coming out in journal articles, and I've been keeping up with it. Um, and I think we need to be a part of it. That's all I'm saying. And we need to make ourselves, our voices heard. And we have some baggage that comes with that. Um, I don't know how many of you remember, but uh, just after uh, this video came out, they invited uh, Francis Chan to speak at one of our conferences and he wasn't well received <laughs> in our brotherhood here's one I admire the extreme enthusiasm of Francis Chan I was taken aback when I read that he's not a member of the Lord's Church though when we bring those in from the outside and teach what is how we do we invite apostasy I love this next one if he does not worship with the Church of Christ he obviously disagrees with the Word of God in some way otherwise he'd be one of us right so it's just, it, it's just an, a mentality that, um, yeah, again, I, you know, I don't want to be ugly about it, but 
for as long as anybody allows me to have a voice, I, I want to challenge that spirit in us. Yes, Dawn, and then Skip. I'm getting a little confused here. I was in a class one time, and in class, and then a couple of I asked a simple question. I said, well, my mom was Baptist, so she was a strong Christian believe, and she was baptized in the Church of Christ. She, I mean, Baptist Church, she said, she can't go to heaven. Right. The Bible doesn't say only members of the Church of Christ go to heaven. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Skip? I just want to, I, I, I won't take up too much time, but I just want to say about what kind of experience I've had in the last several years. I started going to Sitka last year. And in Sitka, there is a church there called Grace Harbor Church. I started going there. I went to the pastor and I said, I've been in ministry for four years. Can I help in any way? And for three weeks, I didn't hear from him. I thought, well, that went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. Monday morning, after three weeks, he called me on the phone. He said, come over, I'd like to visit you. We sat down and for an hour, he talked with me, he asked me questions, he told me about the congregation, how it was a melting pot of all denominations, and who these people are, and blah, 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 okay? Afterwards, he said, what do you think, Skip? And I said, well, I think this was an interview. <laughs> he said, yeah, I just, he said, I just want you to know my sheep. But he said, I, I would like for you to preach for me this next Sunday. I'm going to be here, but I want you to preach for me. Huh. And I thought, mm -hmm, I know what this is. This is a tryout. <laughs> tryout <laughs> sermon, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I preached that. Then next Sunday, he said, um, July the 4th, I'm going to be gone. Would you preach for me again? I said, yes. Well, since that time, I preached for three months for him during his sabbatical leave. Every 10 years, he gets three months to go away. He's been there over 30 years. Anyway, he and I have this discussion all the time because he is uh, definitely a person who comes from the theological background that we're talking about that's on the other side. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's predestination, election, and all of that. Right. But I, I've been able to have this conversation with him, and I just keep telling him that I've got to do what I, I can do. And that's so, okay. As I baptized people there at Grace Harbor, which I did just Good for you. three weeks ago, yeah. uh, they always wait to a particular Sunday in the summertime to go out to the ocean and baptize in the ocean. I said, hey, we've got a baptistry here. Let's use it. Let's and use so it. So we filled the baby up. And yeah. We, and this woman was baptized, and it was just a glorious time. It was just amazing. I just want to say that because I've heard it from both sides. Right. And and I just want to say this, that I think the man there is open to me, even though he knows that I, I'm still going to be preaching what I feel like here. Yeah. And, and at the same time, there's no judgment. There's no judgment. <coughs> Well, and that's all we can do is teach. And that's all I'm trying to do is, is to give us, well, I mean, I'll say it, it. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be writing the book if I didn't think it was a better way. I think it's a better way to enter the conversation when you start with the cross of Christ and you start with what Christ did on the cross for the sins of humanity. That's a whole lot better place to start than where we have been known to start in the past is the distinct nature of the of the church. I mean, 
that conversation doesn't get you very far. And, you know, you don't call the preacher the pastor and, and all those other things. I, I think we need to start at where this, the conversation starts, and that's the cross of Christ. Benita? I was talking to a family member, and I told him that I felt like it was a possibility that we've added to the scripture with the phrase necessary inference, command, and example. Right. And their response to me was, well, then we don't have a message. Yeah. And I think that's where the trajectory has gone. Yeah. Way off that our it's no it's not Christ and Him crucified and teaching. See, and that's the thing. What did Paul say? I I determined to know nothing but among you but Christ and Him crucified, and that's where I think we need to get back to. Yeah. That's a, the beauty of communicating with other believers in Jesus. But if, if Christ on the cross has done it for us, right? Then I mean, and we we are going to argue. Well, I can be a brother and a sister in, in the meet too other people who share the big yeah. thing so maybe they are yeah reformed to the or whatever that's not that's not the, that's the, around the circle the peripheral it's him yeah and i don't want to get too far afield here because i've got about six minutes to finish but to go back to what skip's saying you know if if you stay on focus if you discuss christ and him crucified and not, you know, is there going to be a thousand-year reign on earth? Or is there going to... You have a whole lot better chance of staying in fellowship with each other, right? I think that's the point. Is Jesus Lord? Yes, Jesus is Lord. Was he crucified for the sins of humanity? Yes, he was. I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge foundation, right? To begin a conversation. And not only a conversation, but a fellowship, right? A fellowship. So... All right, thanks for sharing that story, Skip. Okay, so here's, again, this is review. When and how does God make a sinner righteous? God makes a sinner righteous, removes sin, when sufficient acts of penance are performed. When does this happen? In this life or in purgatory after death? God makes the sinner righteous based on the works of the sinner. That's what was being taught in the medieval church. And that's what was reacted against so violently. And what did they react with? No, a sinner's made righteous when the sufficient faith in Christ. So the, the, the emphasis shifted to the faith of the sinner. That was the focal point. And it became not only the when, but it answered the how question. How does, a sinner, how does God remove a sinner's faith? By that sinner's faith in Christ. And what I'm trying to get us to see is that's not what the New Testament says. And we'll finish with this, okay? God makes a sinner righteous when the sinner is in Christ. That's Paul's theology. I, I double-dog dare you. Go home. If you've got a computer program, search for the phrase, in Christ. And then make a list of everything that happens when you're in Christ. Write it down in your own handwriting. And I'll bet you a lot of your insecurity will disappear. <laughs> what happens to us when we're in Christ? When does this happen? When the sinner has been completed the process. That's what I've been saying. There is a process that God has revealed of one to get into Christ. How does he do it? He does it based on what Christ did. <coughs> not based on what you do.
He removes my sin based on what Christ did on my behalf. So, and here's Galatians 2.16 out of the King James Version. Here it is in the Geneva, uh, and I, I thank my dear friend Scott who gave this to me. And as I've shown you in this class, the Greek, the Greek is unambiguous. They translated it first into Latin. The Latin is absolutely unambiguous. They started bringing the Bible into English in the 1500s. Every single translation of these eight passages are uniform. The first time that this term was, was changed to mean a sinner's faith in Christ was the year 1703. Before that, absolute uniformity. That what he says is just this. This is Galatians 2.16. Knowing a man is not justified. Remember our, our word justified? What does it mean? Made righteous by the works of the law. Man is the word anthropos. It's a human being. It's gender neutral. It is not the word for male. So it's not... It's saying a human being is not made righteous by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. How does God make us righteous? Based on what Christ did. And I love this quote. Now suppose one man rely on his own faith and another rely on his own works. They then are both carnally minded. The faith of the one and the works of the other are equally the same worthless, filthy rags. And that's my argument. That's what I've been saying. The medieval church did not give the average Christian anything to be secure about. Why? Because the removal of human sin was on their back. It's based on your works. And my argument is Martin Luther didn't do us any favors. Because what he te taught us, and certainly John, uh, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin who came after, he did not remove the burden. Why? Because he moved it from your works to your faith. And that's not what the Bible says. Exchanging one for the other is futile because the how of justification remains on the weak link. That's sinful human beings. Here's my favorite to the extent that my position before God depends on me to that precise extent, my position is insecure. If it's my faith that has to get me there, I'm dead in the water. If it's my works that got to get me there, I'm dead in the water. But it's not. Even we have believed into Jesus Christ. Even we Jews. The Gentiles are being saved through Paul's ministry. The Gentiles are being saved by Jesus Christ. Gentiles are being saved by believing into and being baptized into Christ. And Paul's point is we Jews are being saved by God the same way the Gentiles are being saved. By believing into Jesus Christ and being baptized into Jesus Christ. And here I'll finish. Why? Why? Why are we believing into Jesus Christ, Paul? Here's his purpose statement. So that we might be made righteous justified by the faith of Christ. You see, that's good news. That is good news. And that's why the demons shudder. That's why they shudder.
They believe. They believe. They won't, they won't obey Christ. They're not going to be baptized into Christ. So remember, how does God make a sinner righteous? By what Christ did. By what Christ did. How do I get in on it? By submitting to it. Doing what God said to do, right? I mean, you've bitten by a snake in the, in the desert. What did God say? Oh, just go to your tent and believe. Ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. No, he said, go do something. Go walk over to the, to the bronze snake. Look upon it and contemplate. That's the, that's the indication. It's almost like go over there and repent and confess and I'll save you. And it's been that way from the beginning. And in the New Testament, this is the process that God revealed. All right, thank you for listening. Next week, I will continue the discussion for anyone who wants to be here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves by becoming a human being because no human being could, could do the job other than your son. And so your son came to this earth he lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. He obeyed you perfectly so that when we obey you imperfectly, you can, you can count us as being in him. And you can count us righteous because of what he accomplished on our behalf. And God, that just instills in me confidence um, because I, I, I trust Jesus. I trust in what he did. And I trust your word and I trust your promise. And I pray that my brothers and sisters will do the same, that we will trust always, 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 and only in your promise and in your word, knowing that you will accomplish your word in our lives if we'll just trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.